may have read in the newspaper the other day that a mailman letter carrier had died. I think some of you had seen that. Roy was our mail carrier, a faithful believer, a strong believer. He and his wife were on a fast in order how to be more effective in ministry. He was doing his mail sorting a few Saturdays ago at Valence in St. Charles, and the lady ran the stop sign, got hit through the car into him. He lost both legs, and then he died Friday. My wonderful daughter, Ashley, has what they call a toxic parasite in her eye. They didn't know that until the first pregnancy, until it began to be active. And what it does, it destroys the retina. I think I'm getting all the terminology right. And so it is damaging her sight in that one eye. There is a possibility, they have told her, that the parasite could, and I don't know how, come out of the eye and get into the brain, which would be a devastation. And there's really no cure for this. The only real cure is to take out the eye. And as I look on the congregation here, we are aware of so many troubles. So much difficulty in so many lives. One of the joys, and I mean it this way, I don't mean it in a silly way. One of the joys that we have as pastors is to listen to you as you share the huge burdens And to become one with you in those burdens. As we trust and hope and have actually seen the Holy Spirit minister. Taking you through to higher ground. And there's just so much more I could say about this. And how many faces I see there where I have conducted funerals for family members. Great troubles, great sadness, great sorrow. And the question this morning that Jesus is continuing to address as he is leaving his disciples to go to the cross is how can we get through these kinds of troubles The only way that pleases God with joy and with peace, not dodging the trouble, not denying the trouble, not running away from it, not pretending, but to go right on through it with joy and peace. And thus to show our God is greater than any trouble That the world or sin or Satan may throw my way. Amen? You see, I am determined that in the face of what my daughter is going through, not to be overcome by the grief, but in the sorrow, allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in me to overcome the show that He is greater than what the enemy and what the world and what Satan can do. Determining this. 
just determined. And the more that slimy snake rolls at us, the more we should buckle up and be more determined in Christ by His power to say, bring it on, bring it on, because the more you bring it on, the more we will in Christ show you are a defeated enemy and Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory. We're not going to turn our backs on these things. We will face them and face them with courage and strength and determination because of what Jesus has done as he addresses these disciples this morning. In chapters 13 through 16, remember Jesus is telling his disciples how to live in such a corrosive world. What a wonderful word last week. If you were not here last week and did not hear that word about corrosiveness in this world, please, please get the CD, download or whatever it is you need to do and listen to it. Please do that. Because it's part of the understanding of how to stand in the storm against the storm and not be overcome by the storms. And so this is what Jesus is sharing. Let's turn to John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33 this morning. Father, Father, we're going to be audacious this morning and say this. Thank you for the storms of life. Even though in the midst of them, so much the time, I do not say thank you. But right now in my clarity, in my understanding... In my right mind, by the Holy Spirit, I say to you, thank you. For how would we know that you were the God of glory and the God of resurrection and the God of power other than in the midst of that which comes against us, Father, you yourself show you are greater in every circumstance to the uttermost. Thank you for it. Father, teach us this morning. Father, may we leave here this morning as a people fully determined by faith that we will stand. We will stand in the accomplished work of the cross. Thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you imagine how it must have felt being with the King of glory for three, three and a half years? All of your hopes, all of your future aspirations, all of who you are is now tied into this man. He has become more important than anything and anyone in your life. And you're going into the upper room to have a good time of celebrating the Passover, the feast of deliverance from the bondage of Egypt. Do you remember? And you're going in there to really enjoy yourself. Another celebration. And Jesus drops a bombshell. I'm leaving. You know, we're too quick when we read the Word of God not to feel the Word of God. <laughs> Let me say it again. We're too quick when we read the Word of God not to feel the Word of God. You see, God wants us to feel Him. How many of you mamas and daddies and grandparents want to feel the love of your children and grandchildren? You want to feel it. If we don't feel it, is it love? I can't imagine... The crushing sorrow. The can't breathe disappointment and shock that must have come upon these disciples. And so in order to get them through this, their fears, their sorrow, their crushing pain of disappointment... Jesus points them past his death to his return. So let's read John 16, verses 16 to 22. And Jesus says, 
in a little while, you will see me no more. And again, a little while, and you will see me. Some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. But the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You see, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow, but because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. But I'm coming back. You see, their extreme sorrow over his death, the depth of the sorrow over his departure, as deep as that is, will become the height and the extremity of their joy in his return. Jesus is literally going to turn their feelings upside down when he returns. Listen to what he says in verse 22. So also you have sorrow now. This is the season for sorrow, for weeping and lamenting. But I will see you again. May I repeat that? But I, what, will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Is this what happened? Is this what happened? You remember the story, the account in Matthew 28. Jesus has died, and they have buried him and put him into the tomb. And a huge rock is set in front. That rock is Satan's attempt to say there is no longer any hope. But when the women get there, the rock has been rolled away. Now, let's remind ourselves that the rock weren't rolled away for the Son of God to come out. The rock was rolled away so the folks could go in to see an empty tomb. For he came out rock or no rock because he's coming back. Nothing of this world can prevent him from coming back. No activity, no minions, no combination of hell, sin, and the grave can say you cannot come back. He's coming back. And you remember in verse 8, in Matthew 28, the women had come. And they had seen the risen Lord, the resurrection. I mean, I believe they probably came as low to the ground in sorrow as you could come. Think about gathering up all the disappointments and the sorrows that you have ever experienced and collect it into this one. But they see him. He's alive. And verse 8 says, they departed quickly. They departed how? Quickly. They departed quickly from the tomb with awesome reverence and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples, he's alive. He's alive. The day of sorrow is forever over. Having been overcome by the mighty power of God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead, he's alive forevermore. So what Jesus said happened. Their crushing sorrow, their extreme sorrow, became extreme joy. Why? Because he was alive again. What about my sorrows, my disappointments, 
and my difficulties and my problems and my stresses. What about those? Am I seeing them within the light and the context, the good and the power of the fact that he's alive? It's a good combination of words this morning, Maddie. Good message. He's alive. I have to constantly remind myself of this because if I don't, so easily I can be overcome by the little bitty, nitty, nothing, unimportant, insignificant, goofball things of life that can build into making a wall around me which will shut me off from fellowshipping with God and enjoying His presence. Amen? And every time, every time a decision is made, problem, difficulty, circumstance, you're coming against me, but here is the antidote. He's alive. He's alive. And that brick that you were trying to put up as a wall around me will not get put up because he's alive. Take Satan's brick from him and throw it in his face. And don't let him build the wall against God. Just don't do it. So we continue to read in chapter 16, verses 23 to 32. Jesus continues. In that day, in other words, when I'm back. When I'm back. In that day, you will ask me, ask nothing of me. You won't be, what's happening? What's happening? What are we going to be doing? Where are we going to go? How are we going to... He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he is going to give it to you. You see, until now, you have asked nothing in my name because they've been asking him directly. They haven't been, not been asking the Father. They've been talking to Jesus one to one. And you ask and you will receive. Why? So that your joy may be full. You see, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father. I came from the Father and I have come into the world and I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know you sorry. Now we know that you now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered him. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet now I'm not alone for the father is with me. See, just. Very quickly, I want to summarize this passage because every time we share the pulpit, we can't preach and minister everything that is in every section. So we have dealt with prayer and shared in prayer and Jesus' name and God's will on many times and many occasions. But say this, the joy over Jesus' return, their joy, their peace, their empowerment, over Jesus' return, will also allow them to experience fellowship with God through prayer. As believers in Jesus Christ, those of us who have received the power of the resurrection of Jesus by the Holy Spirit, should not be experiencing any defect or deficit or difficulty in prayer. If we are, we need to understand and pursue God in this so we can have the kind of fellowship with God that he desires us to have in the resurrection. And so now, because Jesus is alive, we have full access to God through the Holy Spirit. We have full access to him whom the world is still trying to figure out through all these mumbo-jumbo means. 
We're the only ones. And I know that sounds arrogant, but this is God's choice. Believers in Christ are the only ones who have access to God's heart and ear. And who will be received by him and ministered to by him. And so, having done this general presentation this morning, as Jesus has talked to his disciples, he comes to verse 33. And I believe in verse 33, he makes the most startling statement of all. And he says this in verse 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And I want, believe the Lord wants to major this morning in this particular verse. In the world, you're going to get it. You're going to have trouble and difficulty, problems. Everything is going to come against you because you're in me. But when that happens, remember, you are in me. And I have already overcome the world. Now, let's make up our minds as believers. Let's get one thing straight. Because how many of us regularly pray, Lord, please make it easier for me? I mean, you may not say it that way, but how many of us really want God to make our lives a whole lot easier? Several years ago, My wife and I own a printing company. It's Friday night. It's six o'clock. And I'm doing a 4,000. It's interesting what I can remember. My wife says I can't remember. Do do this around the house. And so I'm printing 4,000 letterheads on 25% Gilbert Bond paper for Entergy. It's a two-color letterhead. They want it Monday morning at 8 o'clock. And they are the kind of customer that what they want, they can get from me. You know, this is just not one of those customers who understand that, well, we had a problem. We can't do it for two or three days. You lose the whole account. And I've shared this before, I think, but I smell smoke. Boom. Turn off the machine. White smoke coming out. This is my first words. I don't need this now. <laughs> am I strange or am I the only one who feels this way? Give me a test or a trial, but at the right time and under the right circumstance. I don't need this now. I mean, God's timing was off. Why did that person call me now? Let's get something straight in our hearts as believers. We live in enemy territory and we will experience continual opposition until we leave this place. Now, can we really get that in our hearts? This is an unrelenting activity and experience. We will, every one of us, always until we either die or Jesus returns, experience Opposition in every and in any category that the world and the enemy and our flesh can give it to us. You see, the opposition may be from within or without. We may have the illness. There's so much opposition. Bodily weaknesses. Mental difficulties. You see, I'm in here. Mental difficulties. You say, what's wrong? Opposition. Just... How many of you wives know that your husbands are experiencing mental difficulties when they don't understand some of the things you're trying to explain to them? Mental difficulties. There are many believers in this world who are experiencing, even as we sit here today, there are believers, thousands of them, that are experiencing physical torture and death, even as we sit here this morning. There are men and women in Christ who are experiencing excruciating pain and are dying even now because of their faith. You see, we're going to be experiencing disdain, you know. We're going to be considered as foolish, as narrow-minded. We're going to be scorned as bigots. Why? 
I mean, there's so much more we could say because of our faith in Christ. We're going to be opposed. Some of you have lost friends when you were born again. Some of you have been shunned by family members because of your walk in Christ. You see, Satan will attack us with doubts, fears, temptations to sin. We will be attacked with the thought or the feeling not to trust God's goodness and to question his sovereign purposes in the middle of all this craziness that's going on in the world. When Roy got hit and he lost his two legs, the first thing that came into my mind was, why? When the first thing that should have come into my mind was, why did you save him and give him eternal life rather than why didn't you protect his body? You see, it's okay, the question. I was asking the wrong question because I was allowing the problem of the world to come in and in some way for a few moments circumvent my faith and cause me to look, as Matt shared this morning, at the earthly rather than at the heavenly reality. Now, I don't know all the reasons why Roy has died. I don't know all the reasons why my sweetheart has this parasite. But I know this, that God has a plan that I can and I will trust. I will do it. Why? Because if I don't, Satan has his way. I am the loser and God is dishonored. Let's turn to Luke 8. You see, there's storms in our lives. Storms. Difficulties. Problems. There are hurricanes. There are attacks. There's pressure. Tribulation means all of that. It's a fact of life. Every day we are going to be experiencing Katrinas of some sort in some area of our lives. And remember in Luke Luke 8. Verse 22. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, now listen to what he says. He says, let's go across to the other side of the lake. Jesus said, we're going across. You see, he has announced his purpose. The purpose of God in our lives is that he will receive the glory in all that he does as we walk as faithful, obedient, overcoming men and women in Christ. Amen. He is going to get us to the other side of this thing. Let's go to the other side. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. He's fine. He fell asleep. He's relaxed. He's satisfied. He's at rest. The sea is calm and he just falls asleep. Well, anybody can fall asleep in in a calm day because he's satisfied. But something happens. And a windstorm came down on the lake. Ah, the enemy. (laughs) We're going to do something and wreck that ship and sink that man's hope. We're going to get him. We think we're sailing fine. And we turn the corner and there's a hundred mile an hour gale coming against us. Amen. Are we ready for that? Jesus is ready. Why? Because he's resting. In the power of God. He's asleep. And the storm came down from the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. This is quite a storm. And they went in and woke him saying, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled, saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the waters and they obey him? Why was Jesus able to calm the storm? Well, well, he's the son of God. Yes, but there was something else. He's a human being. The son of man. 
And he's a man who is completely, totally satisfied and at rest in any and every circumstance of life. And because he was able to sleep through or in the midst of the storm, meaning being at rest in his dependence upon and in his knowledge of God's will to be accomplished in him, because he was able to sleep, he was able to rebuke the winds and the waves. He was able to overcome them because he was sleeping in them. You see, our ability to have joy and peace in the storms of life for the overcoming of these storms is dependent upon us receiving, embracing, and trusting the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is alive. He says, you are in me and I am coming back. And he has come back. See, he said, be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, look at that statement. I, that to me is not only an audacious statement. It's timing is extraordinary. Now, did you think of that? It's audacious. <laughs> Who are you? And it's timing is extraordinary. When does Jesus say, I have overcome the world? You remember your grammar? I have overcome is what tense? Present, past, future. What is it? Past tense. Well, what do you mean you've overcome the world? You see, Jesus hasn't even gone to the cross yet. How could he say, I have overcome the world? He hasn't even died and experienced the resurrection yet. How can he say, I have already overcome the world? You see, Jesus wasn't waiting for circumstances and the outcome. He says this before going to the cross. May I say it this way? Jesus did not come to win the victory. He is the victor. He came to display the victory of God over all things. He didn't come to win anything. He came to display that God himself, in it all and over all and forevermore, is the great victor of everything. The overcomer in every circumstance. Amen? So don't think of the cross as Jesus getting there and, and oh, finally, I won, I won. Now I can go home. He didn't come like that. He stepped up to that cross and looked at the face of that cross by faith in Him who promised. And He says, I'm going to grab you. And He walks into the jaws of the lion. And that jaws of the lion of death closed its mouth over Jesus Christ. But Jesus, when He returned on the third day, He pulled the teeth out of the lion. And the lion of death has no more teeth to hurt us. He didn't come hoping, I hope I don't get bitten. He came to say, open your mouth, I'm coming in, and I'm going to take out every bit of power you ever had. You see, we're not talking about some wimpy man. We're talking about the God of glory here. The captain of the host of the Lord. The great God Almighty Himself. It's a good song, we ought to sing that one day. You remember in John 11, He's telling Martha... I am the resurrection. How do you know that? You ain't raised yet. You ain't. I am the resurrection. You see, there's no doubt in his mind about the victory. You see, he comes to display the victory. In the first coming in his incarnation, he came to apply that victory. What is the victory? Who he is and how he is himself. He came to apply his victory against this fallen world and Satan and sin and the flesh. He applied it the moment he was conceived to the moment he died on the cross was a continual application of the victory of God over the fallen universe. It culminates at the cross and it comes to its grand finale. When he deals with the sin of the world by dying under the wrath of God for our forgiveness. Amen. And then when he returns in the resurrection, 
having already applied the victory, now he begins by the Holy Spirit to administer his victory against all opposition by the church, through the church. So we today in Christ, we are the active administration of the victory of God himself against all that stuff in the world. We are. Did you get it? We are. Why? Because the same spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead lives where? He lives in us. First John 4, 4, what does it say? The last part of the verse. Greater is he who is in us, me, you, than he who is in the world. He applied the victory in the incarnation and now in the resurrection, he's administering that victory. You see, Jesus at this point in John 16 is about to enter the fiercest battle of all eternity. But he's going to go into the battle as the one who has already won. Satan ain't got a chance in hell. Now, say that again, because you and I may think that he has some kind of a chance in our lives. Satan has no chance. He has only opportunity to oppose through deception and lies. His mouth has had the teeth taken out. But he can certainly damage and hurt us if we allow him. But if we resist it and in the name of the Lord do correctly and live out the resurrection power, we will find that he is a toothless loudmouth. Roaring whom he may devour, you know, roaring, but he ain't got no teeth. Can you imagine a little cat going, and you say, what in the world? And you look at his little old cat, no teeth, no claws. Why? Because the resurrection. Why is this true? The resurrection. Well, how could Jesus have such confidence? How could he? Just going to say three things about that and move along. He can have the confidence... Because he is the eternal son of God, equal with the father and the son. As a man, he's the eternal son of God. He's equal with the father and the son. He's a member of the Godhead. He's divine. That's the reason. Second, he's the creator and sustainer of all things. He has created all things and he opposes all things by the word of his power in Hebrews 1. And third, he is the Lord of the Old Testament who has already won every battle. You see, he's in the flesh now, but he has 6,000 or whatever years it is or something like that of history of having won. Every time you see the Lord being opposed in the Old Testament, you see a mighty God rising up against all the enemies. And he says to them... Come on, come on, come on, get a few more, come on, come on, all y'all, come, assemble yourselves before me, all the enemies of the world, all the activities of sin, all the minions of Satan, come on, don't you have any more? Come on, bring it all on. And then with the, (laughs) he is the victor. Jesus knows this. How did he overcome this world? How did he do this? Well, that's Jesus. He did it as a man and for man. And in him, we were in him when he did it. Therefore, we have the same ability by the spirit that he had. How did he do it? By faith in him who promised. How did Jesus do this? By faith. You see, he says, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Remember in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 9, this wonderful, wonderful promise between God the Father and God the Son. He says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, there's a conversation in heaven, God the Father speaking to God the Son. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. 
You see, he came believing the word and the testimony of the one who promised. He came and he lived by faith. What does his faith in God look like? What did it look like? He humbled himself with our humanity. First thing, the first aspect of faith, and probably the primary and most significant aspect of faith is this. Humility. Humility. He humbled himself. Remember in Philippians 2, he humbled himself with our humanity. You remember he went into the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. And he was challenged by the enemy, but he overcame all the temptations of the devil. How can he say, I overcome the world? I have overcome. He humbled himself and then he overcame all the temptations of the devil. He was persecuted by evil men. He willingly laid down his life for the father's purpose. You see that in verse 28. I do this, I do that, and I'm going to do that. These are comments about what he is doing. This is not out of his control. He is in control. He was condemned in our place. And he experienced our death. How does he overcome it? Because he's the son of God who takes our place, lives our life, and is condemned with our condemnation. What did this accomplish? What did this life accomplish? This life that went to the cross. He is a resurrected one now. Victorious over all sin. Satan. Hell and the grave. He is today. Always has been. But he did this so we in him could experience the same victory that he experienced in his resurrection. You see, we sin. But we do. Now, let me make sure you hear what I say. We don't have to commit any purposeful sin. Every time temptation to sin comes in my heart, to fear, to be anxious, to be critical, to be dissatisfied, to be whatever. Once I realize what that is, every time by the Holy Spirit, I have and so do you the power to say no and overcome every time. Amen? You see, there's no excuse for sinning this way. Now, there will be other areas of sin that will occur in our lives. But we're talking about those volitional things that we know about. He is the Lord who gives eternal life to his people by the gift of the Spirit. You remember the vindication of God in Ezekiel? What, what chapter was that? 36. Just wanted to wake you up, I'm thinking. <clears throat> He's the soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords. He's returning for his bride and with his bride. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Why? Because he's risen from the dead. He's the Lord who judges the nations and he is the Lamb who is alive forevermore, sitting in the throne of God. So, how, does, how can we have some of this experience? How can we Get, if you would, this into our lives. First, as I said earlier, every one of us will suffer. Second Timothy 3.12 And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If this morning you count yourself as a believer and you have not experienced any appreciable suffering because of your faith, you might want to go back to God and ask him if you are walking in a way that you should be walking. Because quite simply, the enemy, the world, will attack you because of Christ. So everyone will suffer, every believer. Secondly, God has a purpose in our troubles. God has a purpose. You see, this helps me. This helps me to realize that this thing that I'm going through or experiencing, this attack, this difficulty, these circumstances, they are not just a whirlwind of something occurring because God has set the world in motion and sitting back and letting it happen. 
but it is the very personal activity of God in my life doing something according to His purpose. Amen? Because He is sovereign. He has a purpose in mind. 1 Peter 4, 14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, I'm sorry, 1 Peter 4, 14, yeah. He says, keep on rejoicing at the end of the verse, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. You see, there is a revelation here of who God is and how God is as we overcome with joy and peace in each of these circumstances because of the resurrection power in us. It's all about God. Our life is to be a statement of who God is and how God is. Third, not all suffering is a result of sin. You know, I know many, many, many struggle with this. Well, this is happening or that's happening, whatever. Is it sin in my life? Well, it's always appropriate to ask God right up front, is there sin in my life that you are desiring to reveal in the midst of this circumstance? Always do that. Never assume you are innocent because you ain't. <clears throat> and often the Lord will take opportunity to say, well, now that you asked, let's always ask. Let's not say, why, why, why? Let's say, Father, what are you trying to tell me? I want to know. But not every time I'm suffering, there is an activity of sin. Now, sin will create Suffering and open the door to Satan's ability to crawl into my lap. And he's not there just to cuddle. He's there to destroy. 1 Peter 4.14 again. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. And then he goes on to say, but shame on you if you're reviled because you're doing these bad things. He said, then it's your fault. But now also, let's not be on the other side. Every time I suffer, it's because, you know, of the glory of God, the glory of God. And it's my cross to bear, whatever. There's God is doing something in us very deep by bringing these things against us. One of the men that I was reading as I study through some of these books of the New Testament, Sinclair Ferguson, said something to this effect. How many of you know what these silver things, these, you know, that, you know, it has to be polished or brass, whatever. Suffering is the polishing cloth. And I just had to add, and joy is the elbow grease. Suffering is the polishing cloth. Have you, any of you ever done this kind of thing? Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, making it look good. And joy and peace, what? Is the elbow grease. And once that's our life because of the resurrection, this container can beautifully reflect the glory of God because we've wiped away all the mess. Fourth, our experience of Christ's victory is not automatic. Hey, this is not an automatic thing. I'm in Christ, therefore I am in victory. Well, victory, yes, you are positionally, but practically you are not. It's not automatic. We must fight from the position of victory by faith. We're not fighting to get the victory. We're fighting from the position of already having been given the victory to administer and show forth that we have the one who is victorious in us. So we're not fighting to get. We're fighting to display, to administer what Jesus has already shown. This in these words of 2 Corinthians 2, 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us in his triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. He is leading us through the difficulties. You remember in Philippians 4.13, one of the favorite verses, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Don't you love that verse? But there is some reason why he wrote that. When the Apostle Paul wrote this, he's in prison in Rome. Well, if you can do all things in Christ, why don't you just get out of prison, brother? You see, you don't have the faith. If you had the faith, you could walk above the circumstance. And they wouldn't be able to put a hand on you. What kind of filth is that? It's filthy. Because it taints God's word. Listen to why Paul can say this. He says... I have learned 
Oh, how has he learned? God has taken the cloth of suffering and plied it in Paul's life. And when Paul began to experience the cloth of God's suffering upon him, I say God's suffering, using the world and the activities of the world. God is the author of allowing this and moving these things into our lives. I know you don't like that, but thanks be to God, he does it. Just go ahead and read some of the verses in chapter 45 of Isaiah, and they'll burn your eyebrows off. And as Paul experiences these things, he knows, I'm a man in Christ, and I'm going to take this cloth, and I am going to learn to polish this vessel so that the brilliance of God may show forth. So he says, I have learned by actively embracing the troubles. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. Can any of you say that? I mean, you, know, <clears throat> you know how we know we're content in every circumstance? We no longer complain. Listen to what he says. I have learned that in every circumstance to be what? Content. This is a huge thing he says here. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and the suffering of need. He's learned it through sufferings. Therefore, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it all. Now, if you're wondering, maybe Paul didn't experience your sufferings. Well, that's Paul. He's the apostle. You know, I mean, anybody walk around like that. Just... Take this scripture down, 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. And the apostle will list for you 23 things that he went through. And none of us have gone through it. None of us. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 29. See, Paul had to fight. He fought for victory. He fought for victory. Jesus' victory was declared as he fought the fight of faith from the perspective of God's sovereign purpose. And we have to do the very same thing. In the same way, we must embrace the resurrection. We have been raised with him. We must embrace it and experience the joy and the peace that comes as a result of experiencing the resurrection and then apply that to every circumstance in my life. We have to fight for these things. It's not easy when things are going bad and circumstances are crumbling. We have to fight for these things. May I say it again? We have to what? Fight for these things. Go out the door today and by this afternoon when the sun sets, you will have to fight a battle. Be ready to fight. Paul says in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight. It's ain't a cakewalk. 1 John 5, 4 through 5. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. How many of you are born of God in here? We overcome the world, he says. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Even our faith, like Jesus' faith in the one who promised. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And embracing that, we are experiencing the resurrection power of God. We have to fight. We must fight for faith in order to experience Christ's victory. The fight of faith to experience Christ's victory. And our fight, our fight is on the resurrection ground. Our fight is because of the resurrection. Our fight is with joy and peace as the experience of the resurrection. You see, our fight, we have to fight against being overcome by sorrow. I didn't say we have to fight not to have sorrow. We don't want to be overcome by sorrow. We have to fight against dissatisfaction. We have to fight against all kinds of feelings like anger, jealousy, disappointment. We have to fight against impatience, all kinds of things. You just think about the things that you have to fight against. Yeah, but it's so hard. Yes, it is. But we have the power of God to do it. We have to fight for healing in relationships. There are relationships out here that you have to fight for. 
Well, I'm just going to wait until that person comes to me and then I may forgive them. You have to fight for relationships and run to others with whom you are having any strain at all and embrace them with the love of God as Jesus has embraced us who were so nasty. You see, thank God he wasn't waiting for me to come to him. Let us embrace one another. No matter what they've done. We have to fight for godly marriages. It's a fight. Some of you men are shaking your heads too much on that. Your wives will be shaking their heads more. We have to fight for obedience to God's word. We have to fight for serving in the church. We have to fight for it. This is a life that pleases God and blesses us. You see... <clears throat> We are waiting for circumstances to get right. But God is using circumstances to make us right. We are waiting for circumstances to get right. Don't say better. I didn't say better. Right. But God is using the circumstances to make us right. Don't be waiting for your circumstances. When they come, remember... He's alive. And I'm forgiven. And I've been empowered by His Holy Spirit. And by the grace of God, I will overcome this circumstance. It may not get better. It may get better. It may get worse. But I am determined, like Jesus, to walk on top of the waves... And not like Peter to sink in the water. Why? Because we have resurrection power in us. He's risen. The only way the world knows he's risen is through all these examples of the light of the world in each one of us. <clears throat> yeah. You see, Ashley's eye condition is a challenge to my faith. It's a challenge. It's a challenge to my feelings as a daddy. It's a challenge to my concerns. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. But I am determined in the Spirit, never to let it overcome me. Never to let it overcome me. So that God's glory and power may be effectively demonstrated in this old man. I'm determined this way. See, in the resurrection, the glory became the glory. In the resurrection, the tragedy became the triumph. In the resurrection, the sorrow became the joy. In the resurrection, the defeat became the victory. In the resurrection, the price became the purchase. In the resurrection, Mary's worst day on earth on Friday, her bad day, became Good Friday, the day her son returned. And glory from bad to good. Because of the resurrection. Now is Christ risen from the dead. And His resurrection is the guarantee. Because we are in Him. That we also will live. But not also will live there. But also will live here. As those who represent clearly and compellingly. That our God is a mighty God, that our God is an awesome God because of the resurrection and the joy and the peace and the power that it gives to us to overcome in everything, over it all, forever. Be of good cheer. Be of good cheer because I have overcome the world. Let us be a church that lives in overcoming victory 
through the resurrection so the world may be able to see the same Messiah that we saw and be drawn to him as we have been drawn to him. Let's stand together.